0: Welcome to Check the Pantry, coming to you from the KBBI studios in beautiful downtown Homer, Alaska. Each week, we consider one ingredient in many contexts. Today, we're talking about chocolate. My name is Jeff Lockwood. My guest for this show is Evangelina Briggs from Homer Truffle Company, and it's time to Check the Pantry. Modern genetic studies trace the origins of the cacao tree to the Amazon basin. It is believed that it was first used in its wild form 5,000 years ago by people near the border of Colombia and Ecuador, mostly in the form of an alcoholic beverage made from the fermented pulp of the cacao fruit. From there, it made its way to Mexico where it came into its own. It was domesticated there, probably by the Olmec people around 3,600 years ago, and the frothy drink made from it became as central to the great civilizations of Mesoamerica as the grape in Europe and the coffee bean in the Middle East. And for a similar reason, it's stimulating, intoxicating properties. After they annihilated the Aztecs, the Spanish tried unsuccessfully to keep the secret of chocolate to themselves, but by the early 1600s, it had established itself as a popular beverage in Europe. Linnaeus, the Swedish scientist who created the modern system of biological classification was such a fan that when it came time in 1753 for him to give the cacao tree its scientific name, he called its genus Theobrama, Greek for food of the gods. In its Mexican homeland, the Spanish described a less common local preparation that involved grinding the beans into a paste, mixing it with chili peppers and other spices, and allowing it to dry into blocks. Europeans swapped the pepper for sugar and vanilla, but in this form the chocolate was still, by modern standards, gritty and coarse. It took a Dutchman by the name of Conrad van Houten to figure out at the late date of 1828 that if you pressed the beans to expel most of the cocoa butter, the defatted powder made a much lighter beverage. And if you saved that cocoa butter and added it to ground, unpressed beans, the resulting paste was much smoother, more delicious. And easier to work with over the next century chocolate began to infiltrate the kitchens of confectionaries where candy makers gradually figured out how to work with the temperamental and difficult ingredient the Swiss invented milk chocolate and the chocolate shell and in 1910 the modern chocolate bar appeared yes the chocolate bar is barely a century old its inclusion in the rations of American soldiers during World War II is the key reason it is now the most popular form of chocolate across the world. Swiss innovation in chocolate technology perhaps partly accounts for the fact that the Swiss are the globe's biggest eaters of chocolate. The average person there eats nearly 20 pounds a year. Germany and Ireland are not far back while per capita American chocolate consumption lags far behind at only around nine pounds, sandwiched between Russia and France. Europe as a whole accounts for 40% of the world's chocolate consumption, and around 70% of those cacao beans come from West Africa, where chocolate production, like the other great Western symbol of romance, the diamond, is an often brutal industry. There, cacao is grown and harvested mainly on unregulated plantations by workers, often children, who are poorly paid at best and outright slaves at worst. Efforts to regulate the industry and decrease or eliminate child slavery, have not been particularly successful. I give the last word to the great French eater, Jean-Anthelme Briat-Savarin, who more or less invented food writing as we know it. Of chocolate he advised, Now then, let any man who has indulged too much in cups of wine, let every man who has passed in toil too much of the time when he should have slept, Let every man of mind who finds his faculties temporarily decayed, every man who finds the air humid and the atmosphere painful to breathe, let every man who has an obsessive idea which would deprive him of the liberty of thought, let them each take a half liter of hot chocolate and they will see wonders. Well, it is Valentine's Day, and what better food to talk about on Valentine's Day than chocolate. My name is Jeff Lockwood, and I am joined today by Evangelina Briggs from Homer Truffle Company. Welcome, Evangelina.
1: Hi, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure.
0: I am very excited to have you because uh, you seem to know quite a bit about chocolate. (laughs) I would hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, let's start at a fairly simple place. So you're standing in the grocery store, you're looking at all this chocolate, but some of it says milk chocolate. Some of it says 60% cocoa. Some of it says 70% cocoa. Some of it says white chocolate. Some of it says white melty stuff. (laughs) So give us a little bit of of a guide as to how to look at all this chocolate and
1: pick it out. Okay. So I would start by figuring out what it is that you're trying to make So if you are planning on making a chocolate candy versus a cake or cookies or a baked product, that's the first thing that you have to decide because baking temperatures for chocolate are, well, baking temperatures in general are a lot higher than what is normal for a chocolate that you would use for a candy per se. And it's also mixed in with other ingredients that have temperature regulations as well. And so the big question is, what are you going to make? So let's say you're gonna make a cake. The go-to would be a cocoa powder. And the reason that is, is because cocoa, cocoa powder is, it has traces of cocoa butter, which is fat, but almost none. And it also affects the chemistry of the cake mixture when you use it as a leavening agent, all these things have to come into play. Are you gonna use regular cocoa powder or Dutch process? Um,
0: What's the difference between those two?
1: Yeah, definitely. Dutch process has alkaline in it, and so um, it kills the acidity in the chocolate, but that also affects what kind of leavening agent you would use in your cake batter. So you would definitely not wanna mix it with baking soda what you would want to use is baking powder, right. and so um, with the natural cocoa powder, the one that hasn't been processed with alkaline, you want to use baking soda so that it can work in conjunction with the baking soda to leaven your cake. It's deciding what what are you going to make, right. what what are you going to the store for, and how are you going to use that chocolate.
0: And regular Hershey's—that's just that's natural baking powder, right? It's right. not. It's
1: not processed with alkaline. Right definitely
0: it needs to say dutch
1: yes it has to say on the label dutch because it's a very different it's it's a very different powder dutch cocoa is very neutral compared to natural cocoa powder natural cocoa butter powder has a really high acidity and it comes through in the flavor Dutch cocoa is much more smoother and it's darker in color. So that's how you can tell the difference as well. So,
0: so that's for baking. And then what if I want to make like chocolate candies, like a chocolate shell
1: for chocolate shells, you want to be able to temper your chocolate. For chocolate shells, you're looking most likely for a brick of chocolate. Things that come in chip form, you know, like a, it, almost reminiscent of a Hershey's Kiss, those are baking chips. So you don't want to use the baking chips because those are made specifically for holding their shape as they bake. And so some people have tried to melt down those chips and um, they find that it's very hard to work with when they're trying to shell a candy or make some other candy uh, product. And that's the reason, because the way they're processed, it's they're created so that they don't necessarily completely melt when they're baked at really high temperatures. Right, they still They'll hold, hold their, shape their shape a little bit. And so what you're looking for is uh, a brick of chocolate which the ingredients are very minimal, and they say something along the lines of cocoa, sugar, very very specific ingredients. Cocoa butter, right? Definitely cocoa butter in there. So there's uh, different companies have different ways of making it. And so if
0: you saw something like palm oil or
1: you yeah. know like <laughs>
0: hydrogenated vegetable oil, that's not what you really want.
1: No. Definitely not what you want. That is not what people refer to as real chocolate. When somebody says it's real chocolate, they don't have um, words you can't pronounce. They don't have really nothing hydrogenated. And so basically what's happening is there's, you know, companies that want to make chocolate available to anybody and chocolate is expensive. And so to Make that cost lower. They add these things and take away from the properties that chocolate has naturally, and so the cocoa butter is replaced with hydrogenated oil. It's replaced with oil that's not cocoa butter because that's the natural fat in chocolate.
0: And white pure cocoa butter is basically white chocolate, right? Yes. Without you know, obviously, with white chocolate, it's added. They add sugar and and flavorings, but it's white, right?
1: It doesn't have the cocoa solids. There are two schools of people in the chocolate world they say white chocolate should never be considered chocolate because it doesn't have cocoa solids and then there's some will that say that it has cocoa butter and that's part of the chocolate that's part of the cocoa beans so it should be called chocolate but that's up to you right right but white chocolate in the purest form has cocoa butter sugar and milk solids and it
0: has to have cocoa butter in order to be called white chocolate right because yes. there is that like the you know white stuff that
1: those are called co- compound chocolates. Right. So if they remove the cocoa butter completely and they use other forms of like shortening or d- any kind of hydro- hydrogenated product, that is, n- it has no chocolate, no chocolate properties whatsoever, no, um, no properties from the original plant, the cocoa bean, nothing. So it is not a chocolate. It shouldn't be called a chocolate, but. Um, that's the one case where I strongly agree, and I think everybody else does in the chocolate world, where that shouldn't be called a chocolate.
0: So you did you, you brought up a word, and I'm very glad you did, somewhere in that discussion. You mentioned tempering. And many unsuspecting cooks, not savvy to the ways of chocolate, have thought that they would make some pretty molded candies for decorations or gifts, and they've been horrified to discover that what started out as a beautiful, shiny block has transformed into a blotchy, grainy mess. And that is how many of us find out exactly why a chocolate needs to be tempered. So I went into Homer Truffle Company's chocolate factory, and Evangelina explained all about tempering, including how it's done in a professional setting.
1: Tempering chocolate is basically heating up the chocolate to a certain temperature, then cooling it down to another certain temperature, and then raising it back up. That is the process, melting, cooling, bringing the temperature back up again. Chocolate, after it's been processed from the cacao bean, when it we get it at the store in bars and whatnot, it's already been tempered. Part of that chocolate is cocoa butter. And cocoa butter contains various fats that crystallize in different forms. And so tempering the chocolate at its basic level is taking that cocoa butter and making it into the form that gives us the perfect chocolate. And when I say the perfect chocolate, I mean this specific crystal form is firm. It gives you something shiny. It gives you something with a snap. So if I break a piece of chocolate and you hear that is perfect. It gives it a good taste and it also gives it a smooth mouthfeel. When people bite into a piece of chocolate and they say, oh, that was really waxy, or there was something off about that chocolate, you know that somewhere along the process of creating that product, the cocoa butter crystal was in the wrong form. And so when we temper chocolate, we basically teach the chocolate to go into the form of crystal that we want. Cocoa butter has six different crystals. We want, there's six, right? And we want form number five. It's called the beta. (laughs) And so we have to take it through this process of tempering in order to get that beta, that five, that form five, because in that form you get all those characteristics. If we don't, if we get form one, if we get form two to three, four, even six, we get pieces of the characteristic that are missing. And so you could have some really good quality chocolate, like let's say Valrona or Calibit, you know, and when you heat it up, you mess up the crystals and then bite it and it doesn't taste the same and it doesn't taste as good, even though it's really good quality chocolate. And it's because of that. We have basically messed up the crystallization of the cocoa butter. And it's off. It's off balance. That is why (laughs) we temper chocolate. There are various ways to temper. I have three specifically. There is a seeding method, which is what I use here in our factory. One, because we have a tempering pot. Tempering pots are really Fabulous for people that have to put out a lot of product in a short amount of time because tempering pots basically have a thermometer installed in the machine and there's constant movement in the pot. In order to temper, what you want is to constantly agitate the crystals at the perfect temperatures. And the tempering pot does all that for you. <laughs> Whereas the other methods that exist, and you know, they're just as popular, they it requires human hands. And so agitation with human hands is, you know, a lot more strenuous than you know a, a machine stirring it for you. The tempering pot, you put it at a certain temperature, it melts the chocolate, it's spinning constantly, so it's got that, all the elements are in place for it to temper just perfectly. So it takes out the guesswork for you. That doesn't mean that you achieve tempering every single time. (laughs) The temperature, the climate here in Alaska affects us a lot. The the amount of humidity in the air, everything affects it. And so we're constantly having to fight the room temperature being just right. Sometimes it'll affect the chocolate when I'm melting it down initially. It's always great. But then when I'm cooling it, that's where I constantly have to keep my eye on it. Any other way that you temper chocolate without a tempering machine, you have to be present and there. You know, you don't, anything could affect it. A splash of water, the temperature, humidity, whatever. So tempering pots are awesome. (laughs) What you want to do ideally is you have your block of chocolate, right? that is already tempered. And so you chop it up into smaller pieces. People also not only chop it, but they grate it. And the reason they do that is because it melts more evenly. But at the beginning of the process, it's not so important. You can have little blocks of chocolate, um, but the smaller the better. Uh, basically what happens is I'll chop some chocolate up. And this is, uh, I'm gonna describe the seeding method to you right now. So. Let's say I want to melt two pounds of chocolate. I'll chop up two pounds, and I'll take about 25% of it and move it off to the side. And then the last 75%, I'll put it in the pot. I'll set my temperature for melting, and then I'll turn it on. It'll start melting, and the pot melts it very slowly. So once all the chocolate has melted and it reaches the desired temperature, and it's time for me to cool it, Right before that happens, I'll take my seed chocolate, that 25% I separated, and that part I will grate because it's. I know that I'm not gonna have any lumps in my chocolate after this process. I know that it's all gonna melt evenly and I'm not gonna have any problem. The 25%, I'll grate that chocolate. I'll put my temperature down to the required temperature. There's different temperatures for dark milk and white. I'll put it down for the, whatever chocolate I'm doing. And then I'll pour the grated 25% that I had left into the melted chocolate. And what that does is the cocoa butter of that 25% is already tempered. So it's already in the crystallized form five, that beta. It's already there. And what it's doing is it's teaching teaching the 75% crystals in there to go back to the beta because I raised the temperature beyond the point where the beta crystals disintegrate. So I'm teaching it to go back to the form five they're like little sponges, right? It's so cool because the crystals in the chocolate are like little little students that are learning, right? And so they they learn to form back into their beta, and they get into the right crystal form. And we keep it maybe two two minutes in that that really low temperature, and then we raise it to the perfect. Temperature where it's not going to melt the beta crystals and it's going to give us all the characteristics of that chocolate that we really really want If I get a small spatula and I dip it in once my process is complete, right? Once I've done all the temperature rises and put in the the tempered 25% and I raise my my temperature back up. I can get a little um offset spatula and dip it in there or a spoon or some utensil and I let it sit in open air at the at my room temperature. If and when that chocolate hardens within it's anywhere from one to five minutes, if it gives me a nice sheen on the on the on the chocolate if it's it's shiny. And if when I remove it from the spatula and I break it, it snaps, it's been tempered. So if you see streaks in the chocolate, somewhere along the line, the cocoa butter crystallized the wrong way and it's showing through the chocolate. If it is uh, bloomed, the cocoa butter will come to the the surface and it'll all look kind of grayish, really weird. If it doesn't snap, if it's pliable, Somewhere along the line, we lost our betas. (laughs) If it tastes weird, of course, and the mouthfeel. So a lot of times, I forgot to mention, the mouthfeel of a um, beta 5 crystal is really smooth. If it's anything but smooth, so if it's grainy, if it's a little uh, gritty, if it's waxy, then you'd know that the crystals are off.
0: This is actually the thing I was most excited about talking to you about was, was the whole tempering discussion because I'm kind of fascinated by it. like, I'm not officially a pastry guy. So I've, I've worked with chocolate, but I never had to go through the whole tempering process and it's, it's pretty intense. And I love the, the, the students deal, you know, like we were just talking during the, while we were listening to that, it makes me think of like little chocolate, little cocoa butter crystals all in like a yoga class. And then That's there's definitely
1: the, what doing. Then there's
0: the teacher, like lining them all up in the right poses we are going to hear some more about tempering, but I want to talk about uh, a couple of the, the the things that you can do with chocolate where you don't have to temper it. And the probably the, the the main thing, if you're working with a lot of chocolate in a dessert context, is ganache. Right. That's mostly what I've done. And you don't have to temper ganache. It's really easy. Do you have a preferred method for making it? Because I know that people get very, like, intense about how to make it properly.
1: <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um I am very open to experimenting and doing uh, different things with ganaches. I am not one of those people that I have to follow specific rules. But uh, overall, um, when you're making a ganache, uh, what you have to take into consideration is what kind of chocolate you're using. And so if you're using dark versus milk or white, um, because they they uh, affect the ganache differently, People, when they make ganache, they can make it into different kinds of firmness, different kinds of whether they characteristics, basically. So whether they want it to harden quickly, whether they want it to stay um, stiff, but not hard for me. Uh, for dark chocolate, let's say I was doing a dark chocolate ganache, it would be a basic two-to-one, two, two parts cho- dark chocolate, one part cream. And that is standard across the board. And it works really well because dark chocolate, in a lot of sense, is easier to work with technically, and I say that loosely because <laughs> chocolate's not easy to work with, but it's easier to emulsify if you keep it at that ratio. When you are mixing a melted Real chocolate with a cream of fat. What you're trying to do is emulsify it, bring those two things together, and that's where it gets difficult. So the milk chocolate has more milk solids in them already, and you're mixing it with a, a, a fat. You're adding a different ratio already, so you wouldn't keep to the two to one. You know, right? For me, I I, I love for the dark chocolate. I love sticking to the two to one.
0: Is that the, what you use for your, like the centers of your truffles?
1: Yeah, definitely. We do do something different to our truffles. Um,
0: you don't have to give us your trade <laughs> secrets. but
1: We do do something different uh, to make them extra creamy. But uh, yes, so I do keep to that ratio. Um, and it does still, it firms up just very nicely. But when I start working with it, it's easy to work with.
0: That's basically pretty similar to the ratio that I've used for making like fillings for like chocolate tarts Mm -hmm. um, and stuff like that. Although usually when you're making a chocolate tart, you'll also add butter to make a sliceable tart because I think it, it. if I remember my explanations correctly, it both makes it a little more sliceable. And it also has something to do with the way that it emulsifies.
1: It helps. It definitely helps. It makes it uh, fluffy, and um, it makes it gives it body. And so that's what the butter does in in those instances. So yeah, definitely adding butter is a major plus to confections. Period, or you know, to the culinary world. Period. Butter is our hero. Butter's the greatest. <laughs>
0: And then, so, so then there's the flip side of that, where you use a lot more cream than you would chocolate. And that is what I've used to make, I keep bringing it up. So we're going to talk about it. Chocolate yes. mousse, because there, <laughs> there are two ways. Well, there are two ways of making chocolate mousse and the classic way, which personally is my favorite is egg whites, add a little, add some, some egg yolks to the melted chocolate and then whip egg whites and then fold your whipped egg whites into the, the whipped are the uh, the beaten yolks and the and the chocolate? But the easy way to do it is to make a ganache that's super heavy on whip on cream and very light on chocolate, and then you can whip that.
1: I personally have never done that one, so I've done the the um, the one where I do the the egg egg base and then I mix it with the melted chocolate. But that sounds fabulous.
0: <laughs> it, it's it's kind of awesome actually, and it's and it works really well. You know what I like it for is uh, for decorations. Uh huh and it works really well as a uh, as like a frosting in cakes. It's not, you know, once it sets up, it doesn't set up as hard as a as a mousse with eggs. So it it behaves a little more like a frosting.
1: Okay, and you, you layer it between the cake mm-hmm. the cake layers? That's yeah, awesome. Yeah,
0: you spread it just like a just like a buttercream basically. You know, or you can pipe it, you know, because that's the other thing with like a uh, with a with an egg mousse is once it's set up, when you're working with it, it's pliable. But once you set it, it's firm, you know, yeah, and you definitely. can't really do much with it. But with a with a whipped uh, ganache, it, you can keep it, you know, in a piping bag or something in the fridge, yep. and pipe, you know, rosettes or yeah, whatever it is that you're that you're piping. That and is an awesome idea. It's very useful.
1: I don't bake cakes, but I would definitely <laughs> do that. <laughs> oh my god, no, yeah, I mean, and I I love the more more of the heavy cream and. It's just, it's awesome, and I I think we're going to talk about this later, but with flavoring that, I mean, you can do all sorts of things if you do it that way Yeah, in terms of flavoring.
0: In the really old school, like French pastry techniques, they're extremely particular about exactly how you melt the chocolate for the ganache. Like the really old school guys always say, don't heat the chocolate. Heat the cream, chop your chocolate very fine, pour the cream into the chocolate, and then start in tiny circles, and you know keep melt, keep going out. And then I make it in the microwave, and I melt my chocolate in the microwave, and and, and I add the hot cream to that, and it seems to work fine.
1: The there like anything in the culinary world, everybody has their their specific techniques that if if you know they're they're awesome. Tools in your tool belt, um, but then there's variations of achieving those techniques, and that's exactly what you're talking about. I have found success with melting chocolate in various ways because I try it all, you know. And so the microwave with the microwave, what you want to be careful with is the percentage of power that you're you're melting your chocolate at. Um, a lot of people aren't aware that the microwave. The power is really high and it'll burn the chocolate within 10 seconds. And so that's your goal with the microwave. Yeah, every time I've ever
0: every time I've ever done it in the microwave, I've always done it on low power and for like 20 seconds at a time. Yes. You know, and stir it real quick. And
1: It, it may seem cumbersome to some, but trust me, you just if you just want to get through the process without having any hiccups, do it anywhere from 10 to 15 seconds at a time. And I've also heard different things about the mixing, the heavy cream on the chopped chocolate some people tell you don't mix it. Let it sit there for 10 minutes, walk away and come back and then mix it. Right. Other people are like, start mixing immediately. You yeah. don't want the cream to burn your well, the chocolate. One, the
0: one I always heard was, was you have to start in the middle with tiny circles. Yeah. Oh. And then, and then, and then as the, the part in the middle turns into ganache and it gets dark, then you can slowly widen your circles. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, and that's like I mean, there's like, there's like old <laughs> books that are like, don't do it any other way or it'll be terrible. And then I've tried it another way and it was fine. Yeah.
1: yeah. Or also, also don't stir fold like don't, don't stir the chocolate, fold it. So just like you would be doing an egg, egg foam, you know, you fold it in, don't stir it because you put more air air bubbles in it, whatever works for you. You know, some of us have more power in our wrist turning than others, you know, and um, microwaves do a good job, but then, you know, you have to be careful not to burn it. So it's, it's, it's really up to the person.
0: Tempering chocolate is easier with professional equipment, but you can do it by hand at home. So Angelina walked me through how to do it, but first she answers the question, when do you need to temper chocolate?
1: You need to do it when the chocolate is going to be the outside form of what you're presenting to whoever you're giving it to. Let me give you some examples, such as our candy bars. Chocolate needs to be tempered. Decorations for cakes need to be tempered. Decorations for desserts, they need to be tempered. You know, a swirl or if I had some chocolate lattice going around a chocolate mousse, that would need to be tempered because it's the presentation. So whatever the eye can see, um, if it's the main, the outer main shell, that's important. So our truffles, our truffles, I cover them in different ingredients on the outside the shell of the truffle is still tempered so when somebody bites into it they need to feel that snap the centers are ganache so the center would not be tempered it's important for the shell of the truffle to be tempered because of that characteristic remember that i said if the cocoa butter was in a different form than the mouth feel, the taste would be off. In every instance where the chocolate is a side thought or an afterthought, it's not so important. But if it's the main piece of your product and if it's the presentation part of your product, it definitely needs to be tempered. So another way they do it, which is really cool, is uh, they call it the block method or the bar method. It's almost exactly like the seating But instead of grating my 25%, I melt all my chocolate. So I'm I'm melting two pounds, right? I have an extra, I top up like a really nice thick block of my chocolate. And I melt all the initial two pounds, slowly. (laughs) Don't burn it. (laughs) You can do that in a double, double boiler. You can do this in the microwave too. It's not recommended because microwaves... The settings on microwaves are so varied, and the percentage of heat in the microwave affects the chocolate, and a lot of people tend to burn it because they don't realize that the percentages of the heat in the microwave are so high. You can use the microwave as long as you have a really good candy thermometer. And let me say a little bit about candy thermometers. They have to be calibrated. Uh, What's the cliche saying? You get what you pay for, right? And so if you are interested in candy, Any kind of candy, so sugar, you know, manipulating sugar, any kind of candy. Invest in a good thermometer. Candy thermometers are so important because with situations like these, especially with tempering with chocolate, thermometers sometimes and often are off by 10 degrees or five degrees and you think you're doing it right and it just keeps coming out wrong it's probably your thermometer 98 percent sure (laughs) that it's your thermometer not you if you're following exactly what it's supposed to say my favorite is the ice method get a glass of water fill it with ice put your thermometer in there, and if it's not at 32 degrees, then you're wrong. Well, not you, but the thermometer. The thermometer is wrong. The block that is already tempered, I throw it in there and I'm constantly stirring. And this is where your candy thermometer comes in play because you hold your thermometer in there and you're stirring and stirring, and this can take a while. So basically the block is teaching the rest of the chocolate to get to that beta five crystal. Again, it's just, it's a little more difficult because your hands, your arms, you know, you're stirring and stirring. You have to pay attention and constantly keep temperature. Once the chocolate is at the right temperature and then you just warm it up again and you do your, your test to see if it's gotten to the correct temper, you pull that block of chocolate out and you can keep using it for the rest of your tempering projects as long as it's the same chocolate, but that's another way. It's just, again, a little more um, cumbersome because you're doing five things at the same time, but that's, that's a really good way. Um, the other way I know of is really, it sounds really simple. (laughs) It just takes patience. Remember I said that if you buy chocolate bars from, you know, stores, wherever good quality chocolate, it's already tempered. They've done the job for you in the full block. All you have to do is melt the chocolate really slowly by constantly it, and never, ever, ever let it rise above 92 degrees Fahrenheit. Super easy, but it takes a lot of patience. Once you go past 92 degrees, the beta crystals disintegrate and start forming into their sisters and brothers. So if you're able and you have the time to try it out that way, It's easy, right? All you have to do is one thing, melt it really slowly, constantly agitating it, but never let it get above 92 degrees Fahrenheit. So yeah, that's that's another form of tempering the chocolate. Once you get through that process, then you can work with it. Just be really fast, <laughs> be really fast because you're um, introducing another temperature into the chocolate. So either the room temperature is affecting it now, or, you know, I use um, these dipping tools and they're metal. And so they're, they conduct colds very quickly. And so I'm dipping and, you know, I'm taking it in and out, in and out. Um, I'm affecting the temperature of those beta crystals once you've done it several times you see the fluidity of the chocolate you get to that point where you see it and you know oh my god it's about to break you know like uh it's about to break so add more of the beta crystals that are in the bar for moles it's possible to do it at room temperature but you have to find the perfect temperature in your area i'm saying like with your climate with the humidity because You wanna keep it around 62 degrees in the room with not a lot of air circulation. So I don't wanna have like a fan on the chocolate with the wind forcing onto the chocolate to dry it. I want it to dry, not slowly, because if chocolate dries too slowly, then it blooms. It goes out of temper. So you want it to dry just right. So you want the chocolate for bars You want it to dry at about 62 degrees Fahrenheit for about five minutes in five to 10 minutes and see if it's solidifying.
2: Before we had our kitchen, we actually found that if you do a mold, put it in your like for somebody at home, if you're doing a mold for friend's family and you put it in your refrigerator for just a few minutes that then bring it out to let it finish cooling that also worked, uh, to a degree. So like that, do it yourself thing, you can put it in the fridge. It would only be for just a few minutes, probably less than three. And then, and then just take, but that helps, helps that cooling process. And then you take it out and then just let it cool. You know, as long as your house is below, like we keep it at 62 below 70 degrees.
1: So for dark chocolate, you want to melt it. You want to set your, your uh, temperature or the melting point at 115 degrees Fahrenheit. You can take it a little higher than that, but it's recommended never to go past 120 because after that point it's very easy for the cocoa butter to completely come out of the chocolate and once it's completely separated there's no putting it back. You're gonna cool it down to 86 degrees Fahrenheit and then the perfect temperature for it to, to, for you to start working with it is bringing it back anywhere between 89 and 91 degrees Fahrenheit. That's dark chocolate. Luckily, milk and white are the same. <laughs> so milk and white, uh, again, 115 degrees to melt. And then when you cool it down, take it down all the way to 84 degrees. And then when you bring it back up so that you can work with it, you want them to be anywhere between 87 and 89 degrees don't take it past 89 degrees, it's, it's going to fall out of temper very quickly.
0: You know, I just have to say for the record um, that when I went to the Homer Truffle Company's Chocolate Factory, I was very disappointed that there were no Oompa Loompas. <laughs>
1: wait, I am. <laughs> I may not be orange, but you know.
0: <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about flavoring chocolate. Can you talk a little bit about like how you think about finding flavors to, to pair with chocolate and ones that you think re- work really well?
1: I am very partial to less is more. And so I know there's in the chocolate world period, um, these wonderful Pastry chefs are experimenting and adding these amazing flavors that have never been paired with chocolate before. For instance, lavender. Lavender is a big one that Europeans have been doing, but it's slowly making its way over here to the United States. Um, Or floral, floral tones. (laughs) This is not a plug, I'm sorry. Our chocolate bouquet was uh, floral flavored. But that in itself, we flavored the ganache, not the chocolate. And so... Are you
0: using essential oils or or like ground up petals or how are
1: you... um, There's various ways to do it. So you can infuse uh, the heavy cream. That's my preferred method is infusions. Um, You can use teas. Um, you can use uh, the actual plant itself, infuse it just like a tea, use the leaves like a tea, dried dried leaves. Um, you can use oils, you can use um, extracts, which have alcohol and water, but you're infusing the cream, not, not uh, the chocolate itself. I tend to like flavors that are simple. And by simple, I mean they're not mixed with other things. So, say I wanted to try some citrus cardamom flavor. You know, I, me personally, I would present it with just cardamom. You know, right? Um,
0: well, there's so much going on in the chocolate, that, right? You know, right. And, and and that's kind of something I talk about on the show a lot. Is it's really easy to once you have too many flavors going together, right? Everything kind of turns brown. Yes, you, know? you
1: lose a lot. In I'm really big about having an experience especially with our truffles i love that it's an experience eating them so it's not wow i taste i taste this particular flavor but you're getting texture you're getting different consistency you're getting different mouthfeel just with one bite so you have like a uh, outer shell that has texture that's crunchy and then the shell of the chocolate has that snap and then you your teeth enter into the cream you know like it's just one experience and one bite i I, for me that's the message i like to give everybody is palettes are so different yep try it you never know you know what i'm saying like palettes are so it's one thing to to say i would never put that in there but if you never try you won't know what you know what effect uh results you're gonna get and maybe it's just Wonderful. Nobody's ever gonna know, you know, because they were like, no. We actually had somebody say, I would never put pumpkin in chocolate. We had Oh, my wife,
0: my wife has a recipe for pumpkin bread that she loves, and the key ingredient is chocolate chips. Oh yeah. And it works really well.
1: Oh my God, it is delicious. (laughs) You know, during during the pumpkin 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 season and pumpkin craze, nobody, you know, says, Hey, pumpkin and chocolate. Woo!
0: chocolate's intensity of flavor and its complex structure can make it a little bit challenging to find something to drink with it. So I sat down with Patrick Driscoll from The Grog Shop to talk about some of the considerations for what to drink with your chocolatey treats. You
2: know, it's a really interesting pairing and in that it can be really complicated and confusing, I think more so than with a lot of other desserts, in that With most desserts, you kind of just think you want the wine to be sweeter and flavor profiles to be somewhat similar, but chocolate has a really significant tannic structure to it that interacts with wine in a a different way than most other sweets, or honestly, most other foods in general do. So I think where in most dessert pairings, you really are looking at sugar levels as as your primary concern. With chocolate, I actually think about tannic levels as being where you need to start. I have to admit, I, I find Cabernet to be a really terrible choice for pairing with chocolate. I I know that that's a lot of of people's go-tos, though. I know a number of winemakers. I know Woodward Canyon jumps to mind, where if he sees a menu for a wine dinner with his wines where Cabernet is paired with chocolate, he won't show up. Um, And most winemakers that I've talked to kind of feel the same way. Uh, If you did want to go with dry red wine, because I know there are people that are dessert wine averse, I think you generally want something that's softer. You you might want the weight, depending on, on the, the darkness of the chocolate, but something like Zinfandel or Syrah, where it's nice and round and you don't have that tannin interference, uh, works a lot better for me than, than, say, Cabernet or Merlot. Dry red wine is, is really a kind of a, a stumbling point quite often. You know, if, if you're looking at milk chocolate, I think you can, you can you get a little bit more wiggle room there. And actually, what's funny though is that I think people, again, they, they jump immediately to those big, fat, heavy red wines. But with milk chocolate, where you've got that lighter uh, concentration of actual cacao, lighter, fruitier red wines tend to actually work better. So where you go Beaujolais or a fruit-driven Pinot Noir, those can be kind of revelatory for people who are very against that pairing dry wine with chocolate. But again, I think actually Cabernet is my one kind of really stay away (laughs) from. (laughs) So in general, I think here, you know, a lot of people when they think about Port, you know, Restaurants tend to carry tawny ports a lot more often than rubies, but rubies are really where you want to go when you're looking at chocolate. Rubies are vintage. So ruby ports are made and bottled to be drunk young and fresh. They have a really nice, brilliant purple color to them and and a real distinct sweetness and fruitiness. Where tawny ports are aged in what they call pipes, but essentially just barrels, to be blended to an average age and then bottled. So you know, a a 10-year tawny, a 20-year, a 30-year are are blends of different ages to where you get roughly a median at about that age and and where it drinks like they think a 10-year should. Those ports certainly have a lot of finesse, and they have a, a great place in pairing with desserts, but they tend to get stomped on by chocolate. Whereas a ruby port, that bright, fresh, forward fruit really allows it to stand up to such bold flavors that you get from chocolate. Vintage ports are bottled. And meant to be aged in the bottle before they're drunk. They're, where rubies, they're meant to be drunk young. Vintages need time. They're significantly more expensive. Porthouses don't declare vintages in every year. Um, but a vintage port with about 20 years of age on it is, it's still got the youthfulness uh, to stand up to the chocolate. But those wines are just absolutely divine. Um, but again, that's a price being no object. <laughs> <laughs> Though I will admit it's, it's kind of a, a controversial pairing. Uh, my partner Melissa hates it. <laughs> um, Royal Tokai, which, or, or Tokai in general, which is a Hungarian dessert wine that comes from white grapes, um, I, I find to match with chocolate really quite well. Um, late harvest Rieslings can actually stand up quite a lot, especially when you're getting into that Baron Auslese or Trocken Baron Auslese or ice wine level where you've got such concentration of sugar, but also such concentration of acidity. Those actually stand up really quite well. For examples closer to home, you know, uh, dessert wines, or um, ice wines from uh, Canada or New York can can do that same thing. I certainly, I I like spirits with chocolate quite a lot. I I like scotch, I like bourbon a lot as well. I think sometimes those sweet notes that you get in bourbon really carry over into into that pairing with the dessert. Quinato or Amaro. I think, are, are pairings that people often overlook, well, they're wines that people often overlook, but those aromatized, sometimes fortified, sometimes not, wines that you get out of uh, Spain, um, Italy, France, I mean, essentially, they're just vermouths, you know. so you've got all, all of these aromatics added. Those can make really, really brilliant pairings with chocolate. One of the things I maybe should have said earlier is, certainly you're talking about pairing with chocolate, but you have to take into consideration everything that's with it. And that you know, just like if you're pairing with a steak, the sauce that's going to go with it is going to make a huge difference. You know, if you have chocolate and raspberries, uh, Frambois lambics can be really divine pairings. I actually did that uh, on a tasting menu for the Marx Brothers for Valentine's Day last year. Um, if you have that darker, um, you know, blueberry or, or, or dark berry notes, I think sometimes those coffee stouts or coffee porters can can do really beautiful things. And in fact, now they also have quite a number of chocolate-infused dark beers, and and those work really well. Though, often I think I prefer to drink those as dessert instead of with dessert.
0: So we are getting towards the end of the hour, but I do not want to leave before uh, talking about one of the more famous savory chocolate dishes which when I mentioned it to you, you got very, very excited about, which is the (laughs) legendary Mexican sauce mole. So take it away, Evangelina.
1: My absolute favorite thing in the world to eat is mole. Um, And just to be clear, uh, mole in Mexico is actually a term, a very general term used for um, any kind of really thickened sauce that they pour over dishes and there's variations in the hundreds of it but what we're talking about is the mole that they put chocolate in and so two of the more more popular ones is the mole negro so black mole or um, mole poblano and both of those have chocolate mexican chocolate in it The ingredient list in those is really long. And again, there's a lot of variations in it, but the basic structure is you have chiles, you have seeds, you have um, some type of bread structure. It can be anything from a bolillo, which is a baked loaf, cookies that are not sweetened, or tortillas, corn tortillas. That's how my family makes it, corn tortillas, and then house chocolate from Mexico. And the chocolate from Mexico has four ingredients cinnamon, sugar, cocoa beans, and vanilla beans. That's it.
0: Is, uh, is there a certain type of chili that's more common to put in the chocolate moles, like an ancho or a poblano or something yes, like that?
1: It's very simple. The color of the the chile as it's dried is the color of your mole. The chocolate moles tend to have a deeper, darker, richer brown than they than the other moles that we make but if you're making a a dark mole a, a mole negro you're going to use the the mulato chilies you're going to use the the ancho chilies the ones that have that really dark rich color
0: well and they also have that that like Raisiny. I mean, even the flavor of like an ancho is there's there's like a chocolate note to that, you mm-hmm. know, just
3: on oh, its yeah. own.
1: Oh, yeah. When you roast it or fry it, it gives off those those beautiful smoky notes, those deep, deep, rich notes that, oh, my God, I'm, I'm salivating.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I am, too.
1: <laughs> and so um, there's also variations in whether people make it sweet or or hot, um, spicy. And so you keep the seeds in in the chiles if you're wanting it more spicy or you take them out if you don't want it so spicy and you want the sweetness to to shine. But you can pair these moles with all sorts of protein. I, when I was a kid, I used to pour it in my rice and just eat my rice like that. (laughs) Like it's just, it's so delicious. And of course I prefer the spicy one. I'm okay with the sweet one. I'm okay with any kind of mole. <laughs> really? <laughs> if you say mole, I am there. <laughs> but, uh, I, feel um, like,
0: I feel like we could sit here for hours and hours oh and hours. God. But unfortunately, we've we've come to the end <laughs> of the show. I would like to thank my guest, Evangelina Briggs from Homer Truffle Company. And very quickly, uh, where can we locate your truffles around town for Valentine's Day?
1: We have an online shop. and then Is that we,
0: Homer Truffle?
1: homertruffle.co so right. we kind of played on on our our company name <laughs> with our url <laughs> and you can also find our chocolate here in uh the classic cook um bear creek winery and scott's pharmacy are all carrying our chocolate right now and lands in lands
0: well thank you so much for joining us and i know we could keep going but sadly <laughs> we can't my name is jeff lockwood this has been check the pantry thank you evangelina so much thanks for joining us Check the Pantry is a production of KBBI AM 890 in Homer, Alaska. It was hosted and engineered today by Jeff Lockwood. The theme music is String Quartet Opus 10, Movement 2 by Claude Debussy, performed by Quatuor Ebin. This is the sixth episode of the Winter 2019 season of Check the Pantry. Your financial donation as a listener makes this and other KBBI programs possible. Visit the KBBI Public Radio website at kbbi.org slash support to help produce programs like this.